tonight on Revolt Black News Weekly. Who has any apartment? Nobody. My girlfriend's dead. We need answers. Like, something has to give in this process. Hashtag say her name two years later. How Breonna Taylor's tragic killing is questioning the controversial use of no-knock warrants. Then... The Biden administration continues down this path. They will not get the support of black owned media. The Biden administration on the defense in a beef with black owned and operated media. We go inside the storm. The less of two evils. Plus, black women and the BBL craze. We're examining its possible deadly consequences and why women are risking their lives for cosmetic curves. Do your research because social media will trick you. And Jesse Smollett's I am not suicidal courtroom outburst. I am innocent and I am not suicidal. I talked to the former star's youngest brother about why Jesse believes there's a plot to kill him and who he believes wants him dead. Plus, why Smollett says the black community has abandoned him. And hip hop takes over the biggest show in Texas. We wrap up all the details behind their historic first trip to the rodeo. All that and more as the black news revolution starts right now. Hello everyone, welcome to Revolt Black News Weekly. I'm Naima Abdullahi. We begin with the public outcry against no-knock warrants nationwide as we mark two years since Breonna Taylor was tragically killed in a police raid and the hashtag say her name became a rallying cry. We investigate how Breonna's death is changing the law in tonight's top story. That's what's going on. What did I do? For the rest of your life. What did I do? Who else is in the apartment? Nobody. My girlfriend's dead. It's been two years since Louisville, Kentucky police shot and killed Breonna Taylor during a drug raid. There's somebody in there dead? Yeah, my girlfriend. It's her house. We have to go in if there's somebody. No drugs were found in her home, and the officers involved in the shooting have not been charged. The jury found Brett Hankison not guilty of wanton endangerment. Prosecutors say he fired 10 shots blindly into Taylor's home during the botched raid. We need answers. Like, something has to give in this process. You can't let them get away with murder, because that's exactly what the system is letting them do as of right now. Her death became part of a national social justice movement and catapulted solidarity protests globally through parts of Africa and Europe. There's no difference between Brianna and my sister or any other black woman in this country except chance. In Kentucky, it's a, it's a stand your ground law. So if someone's walking in your house, you can assume that they're armed, you're supposed to shoot. I stand up for black women because it was a black woman who told me to say her name. Say her name. Say her name. Say her name in the pandemic was very interesting because we were forced to sit with it, right? Like we had to take all of that in. We had to like feel it in a way that we were able to use other things as distractions to not feel. It's a bittersweet type of thing. It's like, yes, we got the world on our shoulder. We got the world helping us get her name out, get her story, keep going, keep her story alive. But then it's like, we shouldn't even have to do this. My sister should still be here. It's not fair. I mean, it's not fair, period, but it's really not fair to me and my mom and our family. 
And back in the States, the fight for justice still exists beyond the hashtags. And it sparked another reckoning on the use of no-knock warrants, which allowed police to enter residences unannounced. Two years ago, when Breonna Taylor was killed, it was not just a tragedy for black America. It was a tragedy for America because Breonna Taylor was murdered in her home. Breonna's family and other activists campaigned to ban no-knock warrants in Louisville. Congratulations, the ordinance passes. Last spring, the city of Louisville officially passed Breonna's law, which banned the use of those warrants. And it prompted a nationwide movement as the effort to ban no-knock warrants are underway in Congress. How long do we have to wait? It's, it's going on two years now. That's not fair to us, it's not fair to her. Um, so, I mean, it's still heartbreaking because she should be here with us. We shouldn't have to even be going through this because she was murdered for no reason. Here to weigh in on this case, former elected sheriff Kim Kimbrough, Rachel Ponder from Until Freedom Georgia chapter, and attorney Justin A. Moore. Thank you all for joining us today. Two years. First and foremost, we want to express our condolences to Breonna Taylor's family because they have lived with this pain every single day for the last two years. When we're looking at how this has impacted the community, Rachel, tell us on that grassroots level of activism, what did that moment inspire you to do? When we found out about the Breonna Taylor case, it was a travesty to hear that a black woman had been shot down in such a way and that no justice had been brought upon that case mm -hmm. for that long. And we hear about these cases and uh, we had George Floyd, Ahmaud Arbery. A lot of times the cases with black women kind of fall to the wayside. Time passed and the memes and the, the hashtags kind of faded away. And when her name came up to that forefront, what it really shined a light on is a conversation we're having today about exactly. no-knock warrants. Exactly. Let me give you a little historic context real quick. The use of no-knock warrants have increased over the decades. 1972, just a few hundred. Early 1980s, an average of 3,000. 1996, it jumped to 30,000. 2001, 40,000. And that's the source from The Hill. And by 2010, 50,000 to 70,000, according to New York University's policing project. Justin, we're looking at that increase gradually over time. What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's no mystery. There is a war in our communities. And it bears out in the statistics. And we see Brianna Taylor, she died due to a heinous botch, no, not raid. And the fact that we're still having a, a rise in that practice in our communities two years since she passed away just goes to show that the status quo is not going to be changed anytime soon. I do think that police officers have gotten into a habit of routinely applying for no-knock warrants, and judges have been routinely approving those warrants, right? There, there has to be judicial approval for a no-knock warrant. We also have a failure for people to do appropriate knock-and-announce warrants. So knock-and-announce is the standard. Justin, you're shaking your head. Yeah, I mean, I think the nature of no-knock warrants it's not due to the fact that there's dangerous individuals in our society. I mean, I think no-knock warrants are disproportionately used against black folks in, uh, in relation to other races in our community, right? So I think no-knock warrants on its face and just in general are used as a tactic to surveil and keep black communities in a position of, uh, of flux consistently. The statistics suggest that no-knock warrants are really used to uh, keep our community oppressed. And it's hard to argue against that, especially when you see the stats. And to be clear, 
I don't disagree with the brother's point, mm. right? Um, but the legal standard is, is that a no-not warrant is only appropriate in those extreme circumstances where there has, is an articulable threat of violence and there is an articulable threat that evidence will be destroyed. Those are the two things that have to be in the affidavit that's presented to the judge before a no-not provision is approved. Again, I would submit that I think that there's been inadequate judicial supervision of that, and I do think that judges get in the habit of supporting law enforcement to the extent that they would sign off on no knock, a no-knock provision simply because law enforcement requests it, and I think that's inappropriate. Um, and like so many other lawful practices, I do believe that there is bias where those sorts of tactics are sought disproportionately against people of color. So I, I agree it's with also, that. It's, it's worth noting four states have banned no-knocks. Florida, Oregon, Connecticut, and Virginia. And there are other states that came up with restrictions or limiting it. Do you believe that if four states have said, we don't want this in our state, do you believe no-knock warrants should completely be eliminated nationwide or that it should be limited to circumstantial reasons? So um, I see the value in the practice. However, I'm one that also believes that if the state can't use the, the authorities we give them appropriately, then they should be curtailed, if not banished. Rachel, you're hearing this. Um, yes, I'm hearing it. And um, you said the word that it's inappropriate. I think that it's more than um, inappropriate. Pertaining to Breonna Taylor's life, they did not get that warrant constitutionally. Mm -hmm. So we think about like the, the seriousness of it. They lied and said that they found suspicious packages going to that apartment and that was a lie. And they still were granted the warrant and it cost her her life. And her sister could have been at home and her sister could have died as well. So we think about how dangerous it is, in my opinion, for both sides, not just civilians, but officers as well. Because if you think about it, Kenny just, he was just, defend, he was defending his home, right? Mm. And defending his, his girlfriend and she cost, it cost him her life. Mm. Those who defend no-knock warrants say, well, it's good in hostage situations, you know, it's good in kidnapping situations. Where do we draw the line, Justin, on when is it appropriate and who should be held accountable if there is misinformation on a warrant that leads to the death of someone who wasn't even the intended person officers were looking for? I mean, honestly, I think there's never a situation where a no-knock warrant is appropriate. Okay. At bottom, it's a violation of our Fourth Amendment rights, right? I mean, you're breaking into someone's home. Uh, for whatever reason, we need to try and find a way or to try to reimagine a way in which we can interact with suspects that does not involve such a deadly practice, right? So, I mean, if, we're, if the question is where should the line be drawn, I think they should just be completely eliminated. I mean, we've seen just two no-knock raids this year dealing with Isaiah Williams in Las Vegas and Amir Locke in Minnesota in which... Uh, police officers, judges, and the pre-rate detectives got it all wrong, right? Both of those suspects in those cases were not the named suspects in those raids or on those warrants. But yet, both of those two uh, young gentlemen lost their lives. We see a trend in which no-knock raids continuously get it wrong, and it's black lives that are constantly wasted due to the fact that these raids are inherently dangerous, and the people that are conducting the raids are completely messing up the pre-rate investigations. Justin, Rachel, Kim, thank you all for being here today for this discussion, and we'll be right back.
But first, an update on WNBA star Brittany Griner. It's been three weeks since she was taken into custody after being detained at Sheremetyevo International Airport in Moscow by custom officials who allegedly found hash oil in her luggage. The conditions under which Brittany is being held are still unclear, but calls for her release are growing louder in the sports world and in the black communities throughout the country, as many now believe Griner is a political prisoner being held hostage. But we want to know what you think. Should the White House be doing more to secure Britney's release? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram with your thoughts. We'll be right back. I got my boobs done, my butt. Nobody warned me about the dangers. A scene from the Lifetime docuseries, My Killer Body with Kay Michelle. Welcome back. Tonight, we're talking about the dangers of the Brazilian butt lift procedure, also known as BBLs. Local doctors tell us the deaths are just one part of a bigger epidemic, leaving women disfigured and disabled. Joining me are entrepreneur and actress Lyric Beza, social media influencer and businesswoman Spank, and board-certified plastic and reconstructive surgeon, Dr. Aisha Barron. Thank you, ladies, for joining us. My first question is, why has BBL become such a trend among black women? It's about self-love, and it has a lot to do with what's going on in the world, but also it has a lot to do with, I want to love my body, I want to feel good, I want to embrace every piece of me, so. Do you agree with her when you kind of reflect on that too? Yes, I agree, but I also think that social media has like a big impact on people getting BBLs because they see these women making a lot of money off of social media, they're marrying rappers, athletes, and they're like, I wanna be like that. Mm -hmm. So they think maybe, let me start with the body and we'll go from there. So it's a magnet for a lot of different things. Absolutely. But monetarily, what's the difference between before and after? Being more secure with myself, and when you're more secure with yourself, I feel like you can make more money. Mm. On top of higher profile men, pay attention to you. Whether it's athletes, actors, they might be like, um, mm. I'm gonna go with the girl that has a small waist and the big butt because that's what they look like on Instagram. Right. So it's like, oh, that's what I want. You know, I have my subset of patients in which, yes, they do want these types of procedures um, because they're in that line of work in which their body is on display. Um, but the majority of my patients range from about 30 to 50 or late 50s that really want some rejuvenation when it comes to their uh, uh, their buttocks as a result of having children or having some fluctuations in weight gain. So the majority of my patients are really just, if you want to say average, but you know, average run of the mill people, normal, you know, middle-class person who instead of splurging on a vacation might potentially splurge on surgery. Dr. Barron, tell us why this can be one of the deadliest procedures. Because when the fat is injected into the muscle layers, of the buttocks, it could potentially uh, damage some veins and the fat can be taken up into those veins and travel to the brain or the heart causing a fatal um, fat embolism. And so that's why it's dangerous. I think um, the reason why it has been labeled as one of the deadliest procedures is because um, over the course of the past several years, probably five years or so, you've seen an increase in the procedure being done by non-board certified plastic surgeons. Um, You have physicians who really want to make extra money on the side or have that as their primary source of income. They have not gone back to plastic and reconstructive surgery residencies to get adequately trained and they end up taking these weekend courses or just shadowing another physician. 
and then stating that they're an expert in the field. Um, and so we have it to where a lot of patients have been harmed by people who are just not adequately trained in safety and ethics when it comes down to the procedures. Did you go through any complications? What was your process like? I got a BBL and I got the fat transferred into my hips because I had hip dips. So um, I ended up getting cellulitis and then it ended up getting infected in my hip right here. Mm. I knew something was off. I went to the hospital and they're like, we have to do emergency surgery or it's gonna spread and you could possibly die. So I ended up having a huge hole in my hip, like a huge hole. At that moment, I was like, I wish I never did this because of what I had to go through and the pain, how painful it was. Right now, I, I don't regret it, mm -hmm. but at that moment, I was like, oh no, I should have never did this. Cosmetic surgeons who aren't board certified plastic surgeons um, aren't allowed to operate at hospitals, you know, so they're not credentialed at hospitals. So they do a lot of these procedures in their office or in their um, own surgery center, which has, has not been accredited. Um, and they don't have to follow all these strict guidelines and protocols that board certified plastic surgeons do. So sometimes those practices become lax and things, you know, might potentially get contaminated um, and put the patient at risk. Are the benefits of having a BBL worth your life? Okay. That's so hard. Okay. I, I, I can't really answer that. I can't answer that specific one, but I can say yeah. that my BBL has helped me in more ways than just making money, mm. making friends and making connections. I feel more comfortable when I wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. I feel more comfortable when I put certain things on. So not saying that that weighs more than me passing away or anything happened to me, but while I'm here, I'ma look good. I'ma be fine. Mm. My body's gonna look good. And that, that's important to me. At this point, like, Something has to be done because I don't think it's fair that a lot of women are losing their lives because certain doctors are not qualified. Unfortunately, it is legal if you have a medical degree to open up, you know, an office that practices medicine. You can kind of choose that. Um, and, you know, unfortunately, these, the cosmetic surgeons or, you know, other physicians who are not you know, formally trained in plastic and reconstructive surgery can decide, okay, I was an OBGYN, I was uh, practicing as a general surgeon, I want to do plastic surgery now. So I'm going to hang the shingle and say that I'm a, you know, plastic or cosmetic surgeon or a surgeon doing aesthetic procedures. For women who decide this is something I want to do, what steps should they take to ensure that they're safe and to ensure that they won't lose their life like under the knife. You have to be comfortable with the procedure um, and make sure you're doing it for the right motivations. Make sure that you're doing it for yourself because you wanna improve this particular area of your body as opposed to you know, doing it for a significant other or you know, to, it's not gonna necessarily elevate your career um, in some circumstances, it might, <laughs> you know, but, um, you know, just really that they're doing it for the right reasons. And so, um, you know, research the recovery that's involved. You know, I think some, a lot of patients have an unrealistic idea of what the recovery is involved. They, they think that they're going to have surgery and then be back to work one week later. Do your research. Okay. Know somebody who has went to these surgeons. There is a lot of women who who suffer these complications and that's very silent about it. Mm. But guess what? We got some big mouths. So and we they feel like a lot of women, a lot of women feel like I can't 
really help somebody. This is my story, and I'm just going to keep it to myself. But really, a lot. I had this conversation with somebody, and I found out she had the same issue as me. And I'm yeah. like, oh my god, girl, I would have never, I never knew that. Mm -hmm. So really, speaking about it, that your like, journey may be more common than you exactly. think. Exactly, and we would never know because a lot of people are so silent about it. It's like. I'll deal with it on my own when really you can talk to somebody about it. Thank you for sharing your story, your testimony, in hopes that it helps someone else out there. Straight ahead, black media and President Biden face off over funding. So what's behind the beef? We explain next. You got more questions, but I tell you, if you have a problem figuring out whether you're for me or Trump, and you ain't black. It don't have nothing to do with Trump. It has to do with the fact I want something for my community. That's Charlemagne the God's interview with then presidential candidate Joe Biden that went viral for all the wrong reasons. Now, the Biden administration is catching heat over their promise to support black communities and black business owners, and more specifically, black owned and operated media. The Biden administration continues down this path. They will not get the support of Black-owned media. They will not get the support of Black people. And they will not be reelected. That's what's going to happen. Black Enterprise CEO Earl Butch Graves Jr. says the president hasn't delivered on his pledge to invest in Black America. They've gone back and practiced the same racist um, spending habits out of the government that has been in place for years. The federal government, the nation's largest advertiser, spent $5 billion on ad contracts from 2013 to 2017. Just 1% of that money went to Black-owned companies. Business leaders like Graves say the Biden-Harris administration is delivering more of the same. You name the program, and it has disproportionately been spent in white-owned media to try to reach, quote, our people without spending the money directly with us. This is a question that stands out like a, a big, throbbing, sore toe. Georgia Congressman Hank Johnson is among lawmakers renewing demands to commit federal dollars to Black-owned businesses and Black-owned media. There never has been a level playing field for uh, black businesses in this country. With the federal government uh, now spending $1.9 trillion on the American Rescue Plan, and then the $1.1 trillion infrastructure bill, these are unprecedented amounts of monies that are being spent by the federal government. There's no better way of doing that than to have black people themselves as the ones doing the communicating. And uh, so that means Black-owned. You go back to the 1800s, where you have our first Black newspapers. Not only was it a way to build wealth and created some of our first millionaires, um, but on top of that, it was where we told our stories, where we celebrated our celebrities. It's where we kept up on our current events. By the time we're in the 2000s, those things are all disappearing, largely driven by the fact that you can't get advertiser support. Advertisers don't want to be around Black news because so much of Black news was about social justice and economic justice and police brutality, and those weren't fun subjects for brands and advertisers. Only a handful of Black-owned and operated major media companies exist today. For Revolt CEO Datavio Samuels, Black media has a responsibility beyond content to reinvest in the culture. For the purpose of Revolt Black News, we want to make visible what they have made invisible. Um, because we know that when we do that, the world will This isn't just about a couple of bad apples. This is a systemic issue. 
Minneapolis independent journalist Georgia Ford is reshaping the media narrative through her company, Black Press, covering the Twin Cities as it's become the epicenter of a global movement for police accountability. While you were prosecuting Derek Chauvin, was there ever a time during the trial where you thought maybe the jury might deliver a not guilty verdict? No. I would say that my work has earned me credibility within my community in Minneapolis and the surrounding areas uh, because I've been consistent. I show up even when mainstream media doesn't show up. I uh, also am looking for our voices. To give voice to the culture, Ford says investment from leaders is critical. Black media needs leaders to support them. It is so important that these leaders come to us to share their stories, even that these leaders, uh, maybe if they're not in a position to support us financially, that they advocate on our behalf in their corners of the world uh, so that we can, we can be sustained. Independent journalist Georgia Ford joins us now from the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, as well as chief content officer of Black Enterprise Magazine, Derek Dingle. Thank you both for joining us for this conversation. Derek, your team at Black Enterprise looked into the Biden administration's distribution of federal advertising dollars for COVID-19 vaccination awareness. You said black media was being shut out. What did you mean by that? Uh, Black-owned media hasn't received the... Uh, advertising contracts that white and majority-owned media has received from the, uh, from the federal government. We decided to do a story in looking at why, at a time when you have the highest rates of uh, COVID infections in Black communities and the need for COVID awareness, that they didn't actively use Black-owned media. And we found that even though they, were, they had designated funds the Black-owned media only got a third of those dollars. And this has been a continuing pattern of um, you know, discrimination in terms of federal uh, dollars for advertising that has occurred over the last you know, 30 years. Georgia, what are other demands now that should be requested from the Biden administration? Uh, I mean, I think the number one thing is to follow through on those promises. There should be uh, a, an additional effort to provide resources to Black-owned media all across this country. It's our job to um, hold their feet to the fire and then now to come back and to call them on those things that they haven't done. It's part of, you know, the accountability process. Is it fair to call this systemic racism or systemic discrimination when it comes to where federal dollars are going? Uh, what else can you call it? It's the elephant in the room. Um, and I think maybe some people might be afraid to put that label on it. But systemically, when you look back at the media industry, this is a problem that has continued to persist despite presidential promises. So if legislation doesn't fix it, then I think we can confirm, yes, it is a systemic issue. Let's talk about the importance of Black media as a trusted voice for the culture. What role does journalism for and by Black people play, not only in terms of content, but also opportunity? Black-owned media has always been a vital source for information, advocacy, mm -hmm. and upliftment. Black-owned um, media has been the voice that has um, helped eradicate and remove systemic uh, 
barriers to advancement for African-Americans. We've used our platform to elevate people financially, economically, and through business. We've been able to help entrepreneurs build multi-million dollar businesses. We've um, identified and exposed some of the leaders of tomorrow that African-Americans would not have been aware of mm. who have gone on to become CEOs of major corporations. We've served as a guidebook to help African-Americans gain multi-generational success. That is the role that Black-owned media has played in terms of the elevation of African-American and moving us forward. Let's talk about the opportunities that Black press and Black media has given Black journalists. In 1970, when it was founded, Black Enterprise and publications and media outlets like Black Enterprise created a generation of journalists that eventually became impactful uh, throughout you know, media. The Black media represents a platform for great opportunity for a number of journalists to be creative, to tell our stories. And that's something that many Black journalists did not get in mainstream uh, journalism. As an independent journalist who covers the Black community, what barriers have you faced uh, in the white majority media landscape in telling our stories, Georgia? Well, I would say sometimes I think that there is challenges and barriers uh, pertaining to access, specifically when we were covering the Derek Chauvin trial, you know, with the current COVID restrictions, the judge only allowed one camera in the courtroom. And so we had to pull uh, from that one camera. And a lot of the larger white-led, white-owned mainstream media outlets wanted to box out Black press, wanted to box out independent journalists like myself. That just one situation uh, affirms why it's so critical that we continue to control our own narratives, that we um, are the, the keepers of our stories. What's not documented can be denied. And so I've seen the role of Black press and independent journalists like myself being one that specifically in this market. Hey, everyone, it's Justin Biggs here from the Biggs versus Biggs podcast. If you're a fan of sports podcasts, then be sure to check out and subscribe to Biggs versus Biggs. A show that covers upcoming fights, fight reviews, and interviews with some of boxing's brightest stars. And it's brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip-hop, powered by creators. Can uh, move the needle on accountability. Uh, but once you open it up and more people have access... Uh, more outlets have access, independent journalists like myself, I streamed the entire trial, uh, then, you know, now we're considered competitors. So I think that they try to uh, control access so that they can control resources, so that they can control the narrative, and uh, so that they can uh, maintain a monopoly on the audience. What do you feel needs to change in newsrooms for Black journalists? Well, I think that we need to see uh, more women whose hair look like mine to start. Um, they need to be more accepting of, of stories that have true cultural significance. Um, and they need to be accepting of folks showing up as their true authentic self. Georgia and Derek, thank you so much. Coming up, Kennedy's one-on-one -on -one with Jussie Smollett's brother as he pledges allegiance to the now-incarcerated star and explains all the courtroom drama. But first, we're bombarded with high-end IG timelines, but is social media luxury aspirational 
out of touch, or even depressing, we go behind the price tags coming up next. Every woman has to have a skin in her closet. This is my Big Apple Red Chanel Croc, my Hermes Croc, this orange Birkin here. I mean, I have a peach, but I'm from Florida, baby. I'm definitely an orange. <laughs> Welcome back. The conversation about what's now known as the black women's luxury movement is getting a whole lot of attention, especially with the constant posting of name brands and high-end goods across social media. So are these edited lifestyles motivational, stress-inducing, or even depressing? Here to talk about it, our very own Kennedy Rue, Realtor Tiana Harrison, and content creator Tony Brienne. Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us. My first question is for you, Tony. Explain this movement to us and what you're seeing on social media. Yeah, so for me, Black women in luxury is all about women being able to, primarily Black women, to be able to live a life full of less stresses, not having to always think about the stress of life that we always have to deal with on a regular basis, especially when we know that Black women constantly have to think about, there's so many things that Black women are expected to think about and have to worry about. And it's just all about being stress-free, living a life that is filled with luxuries and just a good life overall. And there's so many different layers to exactly what you're saying. According to a report published by Goldman Sachs, black women face a 90% wealth gap due to making less in the labor market and 10% less to be employed than white men. Is this movement creating a facade, Tiana, when we look at that bigger picture? I do believe that when we look at the bigger picture that it is creating a facade. Mm, how so? You know, unfortunately, we're posting, you know, what we have and where we are as opposed to the experiences, as Tony alluded to, the, en the enjoyment of life, the, um, the time, the disconnect that you take from it, which I define as my luxury. So I wouldn't want to invalidate someone's luxury experience because mine is different, but I absolutely believe that we're headed in a direction that may be detrimental, detrimental to the community. Is that because we're viewing luxury from a one-dimensional standpoint? How should we view luxury, Kennedy, yeah. in the greater definitions of it? Yeah, well, I think that luxury should be defined as a form of radical self-care mm -hmm. um, in terms of you taking control of your life and um, really indulging in some of those pleasures, those passions um, that interest you. But I don't think we should quantify luxury in terms of maybe it being a Chanel bag or a car or a home. Luxury doesn't have to conform to these parameters of consumerism, but I get it, we're a consumer society, that's what we do. It stresses the need for us to following each other's footsteps to keep up, to keep up with the Joneses, to keep up with the Kardashians. Tiana, you're always talking about financial literacy mm -hmm. and the importance of budgeting and things like that. When we really look at black women being so much in debt more than any other group, how does this kind of play into that? Um, it goes into the, are we faking it until we make it? Are we um, overcompensating in areas where there are insecurities? Are we putting a Band-Aid on bigger issues that exist within ourselves because we were oppressed? We do um, see it's, I mean, gender inequality is right on the table, especially as it pertains to um, how, what, how much we make versus how much our male counterparts make, how much we make being black women versus the rest of the world, you know? And so when it comes down to it, it's really a double-edged sword and 
you have to have somewhat of a dual lens or outlook on it because perception is not reality. What is the Gen Z perspective? The, a, a young generation that grew up on social media, that grew yeah. up on hashtags, you know, yeah. how can they separate reality from what they're scrolling through? Well, I think that that's the big problem that we're starting to see. We don't know what's reality and what's not anymore. That's the issue. A lot of, of people on the black luxury movement on TikTok would comment and be like, that Gucci bag isn't even real. Yeah. Mm. So it's, it's hard to sift through and find what is real, what to believe in, what not to. I do believe that the black luxury women's movement is aspirational yeah. and should be looked at as such. But I do also believe that it could be detrimental to our overall self-esteem. There definitely is a balance. It could be inspirational, then also detrimental. And speaking from someone that is a part of Gen Z, I definitely will say it sometimes can get intimidating when you see women as young as me, 21 years old, and they have like the latest car. They're, they have this high, they have a, an apartment, at a, a luxury apartment, and they're just doing so well for themselves. But at the same length, I also look at that as inspiration for myself. And I think other women, young women primarily will look at that as inspiration because in previous generations and looking at our parents, a lot of the times, all we saw was just our parents, our moms, our dads just working so hard and being able to see women at such a young age, being able just to live life. That is what I think, I would always say it overpowers, inspirational powers more than the detriment of the Black women luxury movement. I want to bring in a quote into this conversation. Malcolm X said, the most disrespected person in America is the Black woman. Mm -hmm. The most unprotected person in America is the Black woman. Mm -hmm. The most neglected person in America is the Black woman. Mm -hmm. For a woman who may feel like, you know, these are things that I am worthy of. These are mm -hmm. things that I deserve, especially with everything we've been through as Black women. What do we say to her? We comfort her, we still celebrate her, we understand that we are a double minority um, in a world that continues to oppress us. A lot of the times, black women that aren't considered uh, black women in luxury, they feel they can't you know, reach that. I feel as if they kind of look at black women in luxury as like braggers or they're, they think they're better than. And I feel like it shouldn't be looked at as that. I feel that black women as a whole should definitely be able to reach that level and be able to be happy for others that did reach the level. Tony, Kennedy, Tiana, thank you all so much for describing this movement, everything that comes with it, the pros, the cons, the good and the bad, and hopefully our viewers also enjoy your perspectives. Thank you all for being here. Coming up, hip hop's first trip to Houston's rodeo. We explain the magnitude of Slim Thug and Bum B making H-Town history. But first, Kennedy gets candid with Jussie Smollett's brother. It's all coming up in this week's Entertainment Remix. Y'all never heard of Juicy Smouye? <laughs> Juicy Smouye is an actor from France. <laughs> and, and he became famous on a show called Empire. One night, he was in Chicago late at night and was the victim. <laughs> that was Dave Chappelle's classic take on the never-ending Jesse Smollett, or Juicy Small Yay saga. 
Welcome back to Revolt Black News Weekly. Jesse is still standing by his story, and so is his youngest brother, who came out swinging in Jesse's defense. And their declaration of innocence sets off this week's entertainment remix. And you will spend the first 150 days of your sentence in the Cook County Jail. And that will start today, right here, right now. He's very strong, though. Um, he's in very good um, mental health. He is in no way, shape, or form at risk of harming himself or anything like that. Jesse made statements in the courtroom before he was taken away. I am not suicide. I am innocent and I am not suicide. Why did he go so far as to say that? You imagine you're attacked and then you go on a three-year ordeal, you have a trial and everything, they convict you guilty. When all the whole time, you know what really happened. You know that you were the, the one attacked. You know that you're the victim. Jesse Smollett's brother, Jockey, speaking out and continuing his fight to clear his brother's name. The former Empire star is charged with lying to police for faking the 2019 alleged homophobic attack, which Jesse insists is not true. You will not find anything linking my brother, any text messages, any emails any letters, nothing, no phone calls. There is nothing linking him. With the hashtag free Jesse, some on social media are calling for the release of the now 39-year-old felon, including his former Empire co-star Taraji P. Henson, who posted her support on Instagram. We need folks to continue reposting hashtag free Jesse. That is really the, the one of the best ways we have to impact the case. Jesse's legal team has since scored with their motion to have the actor released from jail while his appeal is heard. Is there anyone or do you feel like anyone in Hollywood should come to his aid um, and be vocal about supporting him? Yeah, we, we need more folks to step up. To be honest, folks are being very much cheap right now. Media also leverage the fact that our community is innately has a lot of homophobia in it. And, and they leverage that fact. They, they knew that Ultimately, Jesse was not going to get the same type of support as a straight black man. Jockey, so you think that if Jesse were a straight black man, the public reception would have been way less um, intent on vilifying him from the jump? Hands down. As a straight black man, that is hands down what would have happened. A lot of people know Kanye through, through the media. That's how they met Kanye. But, um, you know, Cootie's Lens offers a more empathetic, a more vulnerable side of Kanye. Kanye, or Ye's Netflix docuseries, continues to trend hot. Producers Cootie and Cheeky were the masterminds of the genius A Kanye Trilogy, a project 21 years in the making. Cameras rolled on just about everything. I think also that they'd be surprised to know that this doc is really about Everybody has a genius in them. You just have to unlock it and believe in, in that genius and you 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 would get there. It's like if you can conceive and believe you can achieve. You ain't never seen nothing like this before. H-Town Hoedown hip hop style. Houston celebrated black heritage capping off the celebration. Rappers Bun B and Slim Thug were among the artists who brought hip hop to the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo in a way some folks were not expecting. Bun B became the first African-American male Houstonian to ever headline Rodeo Houston. We are celebrating.
celebrating another first. This one takes us across the pond. Shout out to 26-year-old designer Maximilian Davis, who is our revolutionary of the week because he's just been named the creative director of the House of Ferragamo. Oh, so dope. The Trinidadian British designer becomes the first black CD of the classic 95-year-old fashion Italian brand founded by Salvatore Ferragamo. In 2020, Davis founded his own popular Maximilian label and has already dressed A-listers like Rihanna and Dua Lipa. But this is historic and a huge feather in his cap. Well done, or should I say, ciao bella. And shall I say, arrivederci, or until we meet again. See you next time, bye everybody. My name is Odessa and you are in tune to Reasonings with Odessa. Now, if you are looking for something that is going to give you all access to Caribbean and African pop culture, this podcast is for you. Reasonings with Odessa is brought to you exclusively by Revolt Podcast Network, anchored in hip hop and powered by creators.